All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I really want to thank you for listening to this show, making it the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. And, of course, we want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Airway Energy, our Vista Gold, Blue Sky Uranium, Bravada Gold, Brazil Resources, Eurasian Minerals, Millrock Resources, Northern Free Gold, and Riverside Resources. Well, I'm really pleased to have with me again Mickey Fulp. Mickey Fulp, um, he is a certified professional geologist with a a degree, a Bachelor of Science degree in Earth Sciences with uh, honor from the University of Tulsa and an MS in Science uh, Geology from the University of New Mexico. He's over 30 years of experience as an exploration geologist. Uh, he's also a newsletter writer who I've uh, come to know quite well uh, at various conferences. He and I, and, and he and I actually worked together for a short period of time a few years ago, but Mickey. Uh, is very well known, highly respected throughout the mining community for his ongoing work as an analyst, and he uh, he writes and he speaks at these conferences. But he brings with him uh, the uh, the advantage of understanding uh, earth sciences and exploration uh, risks and opportunities. So, welcome, Mickey. It's really good to have you back again. Well, thanks a lot, Jay. It's always a pleasure. I'm really sorry, Mickey. I know that you are a diehard <laughs> St. Louis Cardinals fan. And, uh, you know, I can't say that my heart exactly bled for you. I was a fairly happy baseball fan this year that the Yankees lost and didn't make it even to the finals. Uh, and so uh, that I, can, I consider a victory as a, uh, as a Cleveland Indians fan who never mm-hmm. gets to see a sniff of anything at the end of the season. Uh, but your Cardinals did extremely well, and uh, I guess you packed your bags differently now. You were going to go out to... Uh, to St. Louis for the game, but now you're heading to New Orleans for a conference down there tomorrow. That's right. Took all the red gear out and uh, and some cool weather gear, and I'm going down to the uh, the Big Easy uh, for Brian London's conference. Uh, the, Jay, this is the longest lived uh, precious metal conference in uh, North America. Something going on 37 years now. Yeah, that that sounds right. I know that um, you know. I mean, that's uh, it goes back a long ways. I know when uh, James Blanchard was actually uh, mm-hmm. running that conference, uh, and I was still working as a banker. He invited me to attend once, 
uh, and I couldn't because I was working full time. And you know, I've never been to that conference yet for all of these years. So I, I hope to get down there sometime in the near in the near future to attend. It is a different sort of a conference where people have to pay to get in. So it mm-hmm. it sort of uh, perhaps um, encourages people with more money or people with less money not to attend, perhaps. But it's a it is a how many exhibitors do you expect there? Is it I anything? I think uh, my guess is there's going to be somewhere about around fifty companies. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the usual amount. And I think the average attendance is probably plus or minus maybe five or six hundred people. So it, it, much like Radez's show in Chicago, it's yeah. a boutique conference. And uh, and the fact that that costs a significant penny, a few hundred bucks to attend. So uh, it's generally uh, people that are. Uh, Perhaps not novices in in this business, but certainly hard assets type people. Sure. Well, it is a it is a different crowd, I and mean, you know you and I know than traveling to to different conferences. The cultures the culture is somewhat different from the West Coast to the mid to the middle middle America for sure. But anyway, uh, our last guest was just talking about Mark Faber's uh, talk about uh, bread and circus, and I have to think, you know, Mickey. It is true that in America we have lots of diversions, and there's certainly nothing wrong with uh, with enjoying a good baseball game and doing these sort of you know having fun in life. That's for sure. But on the other hand, I think that the point was made by our last guest, and Mark Faber has talked about how uh, in America people are asleep at the switch basically <laughs> because they're they're all having a great time all the time and they're not really focusing on some of the real things. And I think what people really should be doing is paying attention to their investment dollars for sure and trying to really understand what's going on in the economy and then uh you know once you have a sense of 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 where things are going or you believe you do at least then you want to focus on what kind of investments and you know that i am very much a hard money uh advocate which is uh i guess why you and i have uh, first met up some time ago but mm-hmm. you you are really focused on the resource sector your trade your uh you know your skill sets take you there for sure as an exploration geologist um, so what what are your thoughts now what what do you focus on most let's say starting forget individual projects just from a mm-hmm. macro point of view what uh res- what sort of um commodities do you think are the ones that people should be focusing most on right now well that's a good question and and I can't give hard answers because uh I mean I have some favorite commodities and Certainly gold is always up there because that's what runs this junior resource market. Mm-hmm. As go, goes gold, so goes the market for, for the most part. Um, uh, right now, uh, I am involved with a copper company, a graphite company, a uranium company, a prospect generator in South America, a rare earth element company. Those are the ones that I cover, I currently cover only seven companies, mm-hmm. uh, but I hold probably 35. I have, uh, I noticed your uh, advertiser list. Uh, yeah. Some of those companies I currently cover, some uh, I, I've covered in the past, and, and we took our profits and moved on. Uh, I'm also uh, one, uh, one of your companies is one of the oil and gas companies uh, that I am invested in. So it, it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, those metals that I mentioned, a couple other specialty metals uh, have attracted my attention lately, but for the most part, uh, 
I look at at individual projects. Certainly, the commodity pay, uh, comes into play very early on, but it really comes down to the individual project. Well, for sure, that's that's uh, that is no no question about that. I I have noticed though, Mickey, in in doing my own um, uh, you know sort of research on on relative values, and I I look at gold relative to the Rogers Raw Materials Fund, and it's mm-hmm. gone up very dramatically since. Uh, since Lehman Brothers went down in 2008. But some of these things you're mentioning, for example, graphite, uh, rare earth metals, they don't have markets that speculators can speculate in. I think it was Paul Van Eden was talking recently about the iron ore markets. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that uh, his, his thesis was that copper and some of these other uh, uh, base metals that are used in industry, uh, the reason they're so high priced right now is because of the speculative money that's going in there from a lot of the hedge funds, and they have organized forward markets. Uh, but but in any event, uh, whatever the case is, what about rare earths? Uh, what about well, let's let's uh, yeah, what about the rare earths now? How are they stacking up um, price wise in general? I know there's just and one of the problems that I've had with rare earths is the learning curve coming up to learn about the different metals. Each of them have different markets, and mm-hmm. then the big uh, the big risk that I've always seen Mickey in getting involved with one of these rare earths. Uh, companies is if somebody else comes out or somebody finds a big deposit, that's maybe all you need in that given market, right? Well, your point's well taken. There's certainly uh, certainly only room for a few rare earth element, uh, new rare earth element producers. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a contrarian, so I tend, and because I'm a commodities guy, most of my appearances, certainly on business t- television shows is are really focused around uh, commodities so so I've studied commodities my entire career in the rare earth sector uh, I got in early I saw something coming uh, I first and and as it actually happens Jay it was a it was a job I did for you about uh, about well over five years ago and it introduced me to a company called Avalon uh, ventures in Avalon yeah. Rare Metals. I I did a report uh, uh-huh. and I continued to follow that company and I saw something there that made me think that rares were going to take off. Mm-hmm. I got in early. I got in uh, a, a year or more early, and then all of a sudden it took off. So um, the rare sector has been a bubble. Um, the valuations have gone up and come back down. I'm working on a piece right now about uh, the only remaining company I cover in that space, but it's it went parabolic. But if you look at the – there's an 800-pound gorilla on the block in rare earth element space, and that's Molly Corp. And if you look at what I call the cream of the crop, which is the four companies I got in very early on, they were all uh, venture exchange listed at the time. They've all since graduated to the Amex exchange. Mm-hmm. And if you look at their charts, they all look pretty much like Mollycorp. Uh, so uh, the instance, uh, uh, the company that I uh, I can mention if you want. Or yes, please. I can, yes. Well, it's Quest Rare Minerals. In Quest, uh, we picked that stock uh, late in the game it was the last rare earth element stock i picked if memory serves picked it at 285 in 12 months it went to $8.30 oh, it's now trading at a dollar 25 a four year low uh-huh. uh, 
So uh, this illustrates the point that I've always made, and this is my philosophy. I am a trader. Mm-hmm. I don't fall in love with these stocks. I don't hold them for uh, – uh, I'm not a buy-and-hold guy. I'm a trader. And the philosophy we use is when they double, you sell half and take your money off the table. Well, if you did that with, uh, with Quest, you would have been uh, highly rewarded. Uh, we had almost a 300, 290% return in 12 months. Um, so sitting there at a buck 25 right now in a very beaten up sector because of Molly Corp's, uh, bad, uh, earnings released a month or two ago, um, very much missed, uh, consensus on the street. Uh, the sector got beaten up again, um, and it, uh, so you look at these things now, and maybe it's a buying opportunity. I'm not averse to coming in and out of stocks. I'm sure. also not averse to having a long-term, a longer-term hold, hold, or a longer-term, if you will, investment position than having a trading position too. Is uh, would Quest be your your top pick in that sector now, or is there something else that you like better? Well, there's some other ones I yeah. continue to like. I very much uh-huh. like Tasman. Uh, uh, metals limited, uh, operating in Sweden. Um, I'm, I don't cover Tasman anymore. I kind of considered my work was done. We, uh, we, uh, mutually agreed that, uh, that I was going to cease coverage about a mm-hmm. year ago, but we had, uh, geez, let me think. Uh, we picked that at a buck within two, two or four weeks. It went to 50 cents in the first Greek crisis, uh, but then it went all the way up to $5.98. So so in that case, we had almost a six-bagger uh, in 12 months. Um, and Tasman is a very good company. I still hold uh, the majority of my position, although it's not one I cover uh, formally cover my newsletter anymore. What is the uh, what is the symbol of that one as well as Quest? If you yeah, Quest would be QRM, and it's uh, that's the same symbol both on the Toronto and the Amex. Being U.S. citizens, it much behooves us to trade in the U.S. when we can. Uh, and then Tasman is TSA on the Amex, and it's TSM on the uh, Toronto Exchange. All right, Mickey, talk to us a little bit about graphite. What's the story on graphite? This is another one of those things that I miss because I'm such a gold bug. Uh, but graphite, it seems to me, is there room for a lot of new producers? Will there, I mean, if that were even possible, usually there, you know, mm-hmm. you and I know the odds are very much against exploration companies ever becoming producers or even finding projects that ultimately become producers. But, uh, what is the story here on graphite? Why is it, why is it, and is it as hot as it was? It was really one of the, one of the hot, uh, commodities. What, what yeah, about I'll graphite? answer your first, uh, your last question first. It's not as hot as it was once in the spring. Um, the reason that it got hot is prices increased, and the reason that prices increased is because China supplies something about 75% of the world's graphite, natural graphite, and uh, they're running out of good quality graphite, uh, which is determined by the size of the gra- graphite grains called okay. flake size. Mm-hmm. So they're they're running out. They're restricting imports of, or exports the quality of graphite that's coming across uh, the Pacific or wherever it's going has been uh, is 
questionable at times. So there became, uh, because China forced all of the uh, Western world graphite producers uh, out of the market about 20 years ago, or, well, actually, that I should re- uh, revise that, about uh, uh 10 years, 10 to 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. So all the graphite mines in North America and Europe shut down. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the price goes up. Uh, there's a buzz on the street, and uh, the juniors flock in. Now, once again, I got in early, um, and I looked at my first graphite company uh, over well over two years ago. Uh, I I had an opportunity to get in one privately. The problem is it had a bulletin board listing without a venture listing. Yeah, and good. you and I both know, and I, I think you probably told your listeners of how to be aware of those sorts of I things. Know. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. You know, Mickey, just, I, I want to make sure that we let our listeners know where they can follow your work, because you have a website. Uh, tell them what that is before I forget. I want to make sure they have that. Okay, it's uh, mercenarygeologist.com. We also run mercenarygeologist.asia in simplified Chinese. Uh, At Twitter, uh, at mercenarygeo, we're now over 20,000 Twitter followers, and we're up to 6,500 subscribers. Uh, And I also have a 24-7 radio station, Internet radio, mercenarygeologist.fm, and this interview will be posted there soon. Oh, interesting. Okay, very good. So there's a lot of places that people can keep up with your ideas and um, uh, and, and hopefully profit from them. So what is your favorite, if you care to share that, what is your favorite uh, graphite? Uh, oh, absolutely, flavor? and it's a company I'm a, I'm a very early on shareholder in, Flinders Resources. Uh, it's the same people. Uh, that run that ran run Tasman, same people that run a company I also cover called Mossen, a gold a gold explorer in uh, yeah. Finland. But uh, make a long story short, Flinders has a past producing mine in central Sweden. I've been there. It they are on a production uh, scenario right now. They they are selling stockpile graphite. We fully expect somewhere. Uh, but, uh, certainly by Q1 of 2014, if not before, they will be in full commercial production on a past-producing graphite mine, flake graphite, very good grades, about uh, 8 to 9% graphite, and a good mix of, uh, of product sizes with past-producing or, or past customers, I should say, uh, that they've uh, that they're selling to now. So. Uh, it's a company that we picked pre-IPO, uh, and uh, it on IPO day it, it traded one trade at a dollar ten. The next trade was a dollar eighty-eight. Just to illustrate some volatility and how you should uh, the volatility in this sector, it went up to as high as three dollars and twenty cents. It went back as low as a buck eighteen. Uh, it is now trading at a uh, dollar thirty. So um, there is some downside risk because of the uh, of the price of the stock. But uh, you know, Jay, I put uh, put money in the last private placement at a dollar seventy. So uh, I very much uh, like this story. These are miners and people that have done it before. And I think it's going to be very successful. 
is very important. Flanders, what's the symbol and how many shares are out, more or less? FDR is the symbol, and there are somewhere, uh, I, I'm having trouble pulling this off the top of my head right now, but there's somewhere, uh, if memory serves, about uh, uh, 50 million shares. I know that fully diluted uh, with warrants at $2.20 on the last financing, that we fully expect this company to come into production with about 65 million shares outstanding, mm-hmm. well, which is quite good. Uh, yeah. And we and I say we because I've been involved with this company from the get-go. Uh, the money needed to put this in production has already been raised. Uh, something mm-hmm. 21 million dollars has been raised. Uh, they're probably sitting in a kitty right now of about 15 million, and that will get the mine into commercial production. Has so the, it's really uh, hard to beat. Has the company provided some guidance with respect to what it expects, uh, sort of cash flow numbers at various prices of graphite? They have not, and no. in fact, uh, they just released the first resource, official 43101 resource, uh, within the last uh, couple of months, maybe, uh, and. So the next thing will be a PEA, but the fact that it is a past producer, mm-hmm. a successful past producer, and it will be a low-cost producer. Uh, the price of flake graphite right now is somewhere uh, large flake graphite, fifteen to eighteen hundred dollars a ton, and we would certainly expect uh, Flinders to have a very high uh, cost margin, certainly fifty percent or more. Well, that's uh, very interesting. Well, it certainly would be a story I'd, I'd want to take a closer look at, take a look at, I should say. I haven't looked at it at all. I haven't really found the time to get into the graphite sector. But talk, talk to our listeners a little bit, Mick, if you would, about graphite and why, uh, you know, what is it used for? I mean, I think graphite is pencils, but it's mm-hmm. not pencils. Well, pencils is about 4% of the market, actually, okay. Jay. Okay. So, <laughs> so the lead in your pencil is still made out of graphite and always has been. But uh, the main uses historically have been for refractories uh, in the metals business. For uh-huh. instance, I'll give you a little anecdote. Uh, the British won a couple of wars in the 16th century because they had uh, a graphite deposit near Cumbria in England, and they were able to make molds to make cannonballs rounder and, and with less flaws. So uh-huh. it's used in the refractory business. It's used as lubricants. Uh, you know, we all have, probably have that little bottle, a squeezed bottle of graphite, so mm-hmm. that's sure. uh, to put in your locks. It's yep. used increasingly in friction parts for automobiles, so that would be brake linings and clutch linings and things such as that. But the real driver for this, Jay, is uh, the lithium-ion battery industry, and it's it's got nothing to do with these uh, with what I consider. Uh, an industry that's not going to make it, especially in, at least in North America, and that's the hybrid electric car business. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the latest uh, numbers on the on the Volt and the uh, Leaf, but they're horrible. Yeah. Uh, but but lithium ion batteries use five times as much graphite as they do lithium, and uh, but it's we're talking about the miniature batteries in your calculator, in your iPod, in your cell phone, in your computer, all that stuff. Uh, and what, what's happened is historically that's been um, uh, filled by synthetic graphite market, but synthetic graphite sells for ten to twenty thousand dollars a ton. So 
We now have the technology to make spherical graphite, which is what you've got to do. You take the flakes and you kind of make them uh, oval or round. They more like uh, they look like uh, under a microscope little potatoes. So you make mm-hmm. spherical graphite. So we now have developing technologies that are able to use natural graphite for that, and that is the real demand driver. And we're seeing that right now. Well, it's uh, certainly a very, very fascinating topic, Mickey, and um, so we've got some ideas there. People can go to your website uh, and all those other places to uh, to follow your ideas. Uh, what about um, what's your what would be one of your favorite gold uh, gold stock plays? Well, I'll I'll tell you uh, one that you and I share in common, and that's Brazil Resources. And uh-huh. I'm sure your listeners know about that, yeah. so I don't need to go probably go into any more detail. Yeah. Uh, I picked it probably for the same reasons you did. Now I must say once again uh, that. All these companies I talk about are sponsors, and I own the stock, so I'm I'm strongly biased. I was sure. a, a, a early private placement shareholder of BRI, um, but uh, I know the uh, Amir Adnani very well. Yeah. Um, I'm also a holder of UEC Uranium Energy mm-hmm. Corp. The other one I would put out there that uh, listeners might want to take a look at would be Mawson. Resources. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's related to the uh, graphite company you just mentioned. Yeah, yeah, same management, and they have a, a bonanza grade uh, gold discovery in Finland. They just received some important uh, 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 claim confirmations where they now have uh, exploitation concessions in Finland on some of their claims, which allows them to drill uh, more of the favorable ground. Uh, the permitting process in Finland is quite slow, but it always seems to to come about eventually. Uh, that's a stock we picked uh, in uh, uh, just about two years ago, two years on the anniversary of the San Francisco Gold Show at ninety seven cents. In seven days, it went to two sixty eight. Wow! Uh, it has gone as low as a buck six, as high as two thirteen in the last year. Uh, currently trading about a uh, a dollar twenty five or a dollar thirty, and it did a couple of spinouts. Uh, essentially, uh, twenty cent dividend with two spinouts uh, in the uh, late summer. Oh. So uh, once again, I got to go back with the idea, Jay, that these stocks, every junior in any fifty two week period, will have a double from its high and a low. We operate solely on the idea of picking these stocks uh, that will double in 12 months or less, uh, and they all do. So if you're contrarian, you buy them when no one else wants them, uh, you'll be successful. Yeah, there's no doubt about it, although some of the stocks, and I don't know that that's necessarily, I mean, maybe one of the issues that you look at when you buy something, but is there enough liquidity to get a a large position in and out and how many people are going to play the same game? So there is that caveat. I might also mention to our listeners that, well, Mickey is uh, admitting his bias, which is certainly, we we all have our biases, but I would say this, that uh, before Mickey gets involved in a deal, he also is very careful about uh, about who he's getting involved with, so it's. Uh, I, I would just say that in fairness uh, to you, Mickey, that uh, that you know it's not like you're just taking money from people. If you see, if you see somebody that's uh, that you think isn't going to be a good prospect, you stay away. There's certainly enough good ones out there, aren't there? Well, there are, Jay, and and look at the numbers. Uh, there's something about 1,700 of these juniors. 
Uh, I currently cover seven. Uh, I have a self-imposed limit of ten. So if you look at that, that's about a, uh, a half a percent of all the companies out there. So I'm very, very particular in, in the companies I pick. And a lot of that came from my work with you. You know, Jay, I still use a version that it, that more from your due diligence checklist, and I yeah. now call that my company evaluation uh, form, and and so we're we're all asking the same questions all yeah, the time. That, that's true, but you're using your uh, your knowledge of geology to give you a little bit of an advantage that some of the rest of us might not have. But uh, it, it really was true, Mickey, and we we're out of time, unfortunately. But I was going to ask you to go over your. Uh, uh, you know, you're looking for the fatal flaws, right? And that's mm-hmm. what you're always looking at, fatal flaws. Maybe another time we'll have you back soon to talk about what are the fatal flaws that investors should be looking for when they invest in these things. Because God knows they're high-risk, high-return. Um, it's a high-risk, high-return game, and so mm-hmm. people need to be very cognizant of the risk. So, Mickey, I want to thank you very much for uh, spending your time with us. Have a great time in New Orleans. I guess I'll catch up with you in San Francisco in a couple of weeks. I look forward to that, Jay. Thank you very much. All the best. Take care. Folks, don't go away. You're going to be right back. And Jeff Dice is going to be with me. He's Ron Paul's chief of staff. He's been with us several times. A whole a bunch of interesting questions to ask Jeff in this political season. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Arrowway Energy is an oil-focused Canadian-based production and exploration company operating in the Peace River Arch region of northern Alberta, Canada, with a land base of over 28,000 hectares, surrounded by major oil and gas producers such as Birchcliff Energy and Shell Canada. Arroway is currently producing 650 BOE per day, 90% oil. Arroway is debt-free, cash flow positive, and funded through its 2012 drill program. Arroway is listed on the OTCQX under the symbol ARWJF and on the TSX Venture under the symbol ARW. Ladies and gentlemen, the reality is that exploration for mineral deposits is risky business, though the rewards for shareholders can be enormous. At Millrock Resources, we don't believe in risking your investment on a treasure hunt. We believe in leveraging shareholder capital to generate projects and partnering with mining giants such as Kinross, Ballet, Inmet, and Tech to fund our exploration in the mining-friendly states of Alaska and Arizona. By utilizing this business model, Millrock Resources increases the potential of finding economic gold and copper deposits and maximizing shareholder wealth. For more information, please visit us at www.millrockresources.com or find us on the TSX Venture under MRO. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again my good friend, Jeff Dice, who's 
uh, worked as Ron Paul's chief of staff over the last uh, year, couple of years, I guess, and uh, Jeff will be leaving that post pretty soon, presumably, as uh, as Ron Paul leaves the Congress. Welcome, Jeff. Good to have you back. Thanks, Jay. Good to talk to you. Um, and then you have a cold, so uh, we have just a short time here. We won't put you, we won't punish you too much, but. Um, your boss is going to be leaving pretty soon. Any idea of what he might be planning to do when he leaves? Yeah, absolutely. He's got a busy 2013 plan. He um, will be speaking and accepting speaking engagements uh, both in Europe and the U.S., and uh, we've got some interest in South America as well. Mm. Um, he will continue to run his uh, C4 organization mm-hmm. and his uh, in his uh, foundation, which deals with economics, mm-hmm. and uh, he's got a couple of books planned. That he's been that have been percolating that he'd like to write, and mm-hmm. on top of it all, he is uh, contemplating uh, some kind of video TV in a subscription format, uh, akin to what Glenn Beck is doing. So, wow, uh, he certainly has no shortage of offers, and he's uh, a very dynamic uh, person in terms of his physical health and yep. his uh, mental health and his overall well-being. So, uh, I think in many ways he'll be liberated and freed from both the congressional schedule and uh, just all the nonsense here in Washington. So I think he's really going to be on a pure education platform without having to worry about electoral politics anymore. Oh, man, that would be great because that's what he's always been about anyway. Uh, he's always been about education and not on a power trip. He's never been about trying to to get it over on other people, but he's always been about uh, about educating people about liberty, really. And, you know, because our school system doesn't do it. Our, our educational system doesn't tell us, uh, doesn't even teach the kids about the Constitution anymore. They don't know anything about it. So this is really exciting. I, uh, I hadn't heard that before. I knew, he'd, I knew he'd be speaking. I figured he'd be doing that. But boy, does he have a very busy schedule cut out for himself, huh? He really does. Good. And, yeah. uh, you know, people can always uh, go to ronpaul.com and, and uh, you know, just keep abreast with what he's doing. Yeah. Well, Jeff, you sent me up an article here, a really interesting article from uh, National Review Online uh, that was very critical of David Stockman. Now, I met David Stockman in New York uh, at a Mises uh, Institute uh, event here a, a few weeks back, and, and, uh, and you know, he really talked about how we we're in the process of destroying our capital markets in the United States. Uh, he's been, I, I, I guess, fairly critical of the uh, of, of Romney. Not a, not a huge Romney fan, apparently. Uh, but there, this article called "David Stockman versus Bain Capital" uh, was really very not very complimentary for David Stockman, who I hold in very high esteem. He may be a, a supply sider, not an Austrian, but he does have a decency about him. He does understand that we are in big, big trouble, and he's suggesting we've got to. We've got to, you know, change our ways, or, or we're really uh, going to have a hell of a time of it. Uh, what, what is this? Um, what is this about the National Review? What have they got against David Stockman? Well, I think it's a lot of things. First of all, he has over the years criticized both uh, St. Reagan and now uh, Governor Romney. In uh, <laughs> having worked in, for a while at OMB when Reagan was president, he has some. Uh, uh, you know, historical ability to speak directly about events back then. But he's not a pure supply sider in the sense that he doesn't just favor across-the-board tax cutting as a panacea. Yeah. Uh, but he, he generally, I, w- I would, just, you know, call him a, a supply sider. And so really he's much closer to the National Review of Buckleyite uh, economic policy, the policy of a Steve Forbes or a Larry Kudlow than they'd probably like to admit. I think this, this article from National Review is more on a personal, visceral level. 
Mm-hmm. And what they don't like is, is what they can't countenance is any true criticism of the Fed. Mm-hmm. Now, now, what we've seen over the last couple of years through the Ron Paul movement and, and also just through the reality of the crash is that, you know, there's a lot of populist sentiment that's anti-Fed. And there's just a lot of people waking up to the fact that our currency is, is awful and that fiat currency and the Fed are, are, are disastrous. So, you know, the Republican Party and the GOP establishment has grudgingly accepted some of this criticism and even adopted it as their own. You'll notice this in Romney's candidacy. You'll notice this in sort of the GOP Congress. You know, and a lot of it is just a sob to the Tea Party movement, yeah. and they kind of need these voters. But deep down, the GOP establishment, certainly the Buckleyite neoconservative <laughs> GOP establishment the last, let's say, 25 years, it, it likes the Fed. It loves the Fed. You know, yeah. this is the establishment that sees the Fed as as uh, benign and helping you know keep up the stock market and you know financing wars. Uh, so it's just interesting because Stockman has been in the trenches of, of the Reagan administration. He's also been in the trenches of the private equity game. Mm-hmm. Um, so this gives them some insights. And, and you know, they, they, uh, you know, they don't appreciate his uh, criticisms of Romney as, as a bit of a corporatist. So, uh, you know, a lot of this is really inside baseball, and it's all kind of silly. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, there's hard-knuckle politics involved, and they desperately want Romney to win. Mm-hmm. And uh, they don't appreciate David Stockman throwing brickbats at Romney a couple weeks before the election in the form of, of uh, an article on, I guess, Newsweek or wherever it was. So, you know, it's, uh, it really takes us back to political nonsense, and that's what, uh, you know, Ron Paul was all about cutting through, and that's what really Austrian yeah. economics cuts through. We don't, we don't need to talk about, about which uh, dictator is going to be best for us. We need to talk about liberty and, uh, and real sound money and an end to, uh, you know, unfunded wars and these kind of things. And, you know, we're not going to get that from Mr. Romney or Mr. Obama. Yeah, it's hard for me to understand because I I think that Stockman, in the speech that he gave that I listened to in New York, um, you know, a few weeks back, was was really making, you know, was really providing evidence that the policies of the Fed are destroying capitalism. This whole notion of pushing interest rates to zero uh, it's you know the malinvestment, everything that's going wrong, and it isn't fixing anything. Why? I mean, is it is, are are these people, these interests that you're talking about, so self-centered that they don't give a rat's behind about the republic? They don't care anything about America, do they? Well, they're exceedingly uh, high time preference people in the political sense. You know, they're just uh, obsessed with political action and making sure that their guy wins the election, not the other team's guy even though in many instances, I won't say all, but in many instances the policy prescriptions are identical. Yeah. Um, but, yes, I, I think that they have, uh, you know, they, they, they tend to care more about party than country sometimes, which is, which is sad. And, mm-hmm. and, you know... Uh, and their own, their own uh, interest, their own economic interest. Well, sure, Stockman is a, is a deep critic of the Fed for, you know, for any other issues we might have with him as, as a non-Austrian. Yeah. He is correct that a fiat currency can't work and that to the extent it works in the short term, it, it favors the interests that are on the front end of that newly minted money, uh, speaking euphemistically, of course, of that new, new money and credit, um, and that that tends to be you know, Wall Street fat cats. I don't want you know, not to sound conspiratorial, but that's, that's the general effect um, that the state enriches itself and its partners, and the Fed, as a, as a quasi-agent of the state, does the same. So. Mm-hmm. You know, this is this is really heresy, um, even today. And if the uh, 
if the Republican Party and if conservatives in general, and especially the sort of National Review, neoconservative, Buckleyite right, wants to maintain any grip on the electorate going forward, they're going to need to drop this nonsense, and they're going to need to embrace the libertarian wing of, uh, of conservatives and, and, and bring those people into the GOP. Otherwise, uh, they're going to become a permanent minority party um, because the economic facts are going to speak for themselves. Well, it sounds like uh, fascist economics to me, and now I'm, I'm thinking back at the years, years ago, uh, Jeff, probably when you were still in uh, probably when you were still in grade school or high school, I remember listening to William F. Buckley on PBS and talking about how he thought fascism wasn't all that bad. As a matter of fact, you had a better chance of going from fascism to capitalism than you have, uh, you know, if you're a communist, uh, a communist uh, economy. But, but I mean, Stockman to me, I mean, he was talking in the speech that he gave in New York about how, you know, within minutes. Uh, the Wall Street bankers having inside knowledge made hundreds of millions of dollars on a market move. And, I mean, how can people, I mean, I think, you know, this is this is why people are mad as hell. And this is why I think, you know, one of the reasons people, whether you're in the Tea Party or you're in the Occupy movement, people have a sense that something is really, really unjust and wrong. And it seems to me, Jeff, if, if some of our earlier guests today are right, uh, Bill Lagner, for example, was talking about he thinks we're going to be heading into some extremely difficult times here in America. If that is the case, then I think uh, Ron Paul's timing for getting out and, and you know being more visible, even out there in many different mediums, is going to is going to be most opportune because it seems to me that there's talk now, you know, of Bernanke not coming back, whether uh, Romney's elected or whether we have uh, the president reelected. Uh, there could be, it seems to me, a vacuum. Uh, Richard Mayberry's talked about this one. You know, when there's revolutions occur a lot of times, uh, what, at least sometimes, and this may be wishful thinking on Richard's part, or mine as well, but the idea that sometimes, uh, you know, the bastards just get out of town because they fear for their lives. We, you know, and there's a vacuum. And then it's a question of who steps into the vacuum. And if you have the right kind of people, maybe things could actually get better instead of worse in a, in a revolution. Well, we certainly hope so. Um, a lot of people have likened it to a car that's accelerating around a curve with a cliff on the other side, accelerating too fast. You know, once you get sort of beyond a certain point, maybe there's no bringing the car back, and maybe that's where we are with our dollar and our debt. You know, we're running out of buyers for our treasury auctions, mm-hmm. and increasingly the Fed has to buy that up. Yeah. So. You know, it may well be the case that, it, you know, regardless of who is president or who is Fed chair, we have some very uh, difficult times ahead and that we were too far towards the precipice to pull back. Now, you know, no one knows that, of course, for sure, but, uh, you know, it almost makes you ask yourself the question, who would want to be president at this point? You know, who would want to inherit this mess? Wow. Uh, I mean, I, I certainly, uh, anybody that cares about the republic, I think, would, wouldn't be, I mean, it must be that there's other motivations. But let me ask you, when we talked uh, some time ago, oh, I think several weeks ago or so, you were pretty convinced that Mr. Romney would, uh, uh, that, Mr., that the president would uh, be reelected. Do you still feel the same way? Uh, it's, it's really changed. The complexion's changed in the last couple of weeks. There's no question about it. But, uh, you know, we've still got a couple of weeks, and uh, you've got world events, you've got... Uh, um, in the stock market, all kinds of things that could mm-hmm. that could come together and, and affect that. So uh, that's why you never bet on these things. Yeah, exactly right. But, you know, I think about if Romney is elected, then there's supposed to be something called a gold commission. And somehow I think I've seen this this movie before. 
uh, when Ron Paul was on the Gold Commission and Lou Lehrman was on the Gold Commission. Uh, would you expect Ron Paul to be to head that commission up? Possibly. Would he be on it? Would he get to choose who some of the other members are? Would they give him that bone at least for his success uh, in running for president? It remains to be seen. I really have no idea, but um, it, it, you know, I, I'm not even sure that he would accept such a thing given his experience 30 years ago yeah. um, when Reagan was president. But the good news is that the uh, Gold Commission report, called, or well, the Minority Report, which was mm-hmm. called the Case for Gold, that was co-written by Dr. Paul and Louis Lehrman, mm-hmm. is coming out with a new edition. Oh, it's okay. It's going to have a new foreword uh, mm-hmm. by by Ron. And um, you know, so it's so it's an opportunity. It's a very inexpensive little paperback. I think it's five or ten dollars at most. Um, available, I think, from Mises.org online. But it's it's a great little way for people who, who want to go back and get that history and, and read some of the warnings and and the blueprint that uh, was laid out in that to to go back and say, hey, you know, if we'd done some of this stuff 30 years ago, we might be in a very different place today. Yeah, indeed. Well, that's uh, certainly a read that our listeners are going to want to take advantage of, and I guess they can probably get that where, Jeff? They could get it from... You know, I, I, sorry, I misspoke. It's going to be republished by Laissez-Faire Books. Oh, okay, Laissez-Faire Books. Okay, that's really good. Well, now, um, so you told me what Ron is going to do. Um, what, are, what are your plans? You know, I may go back into the public accounting world, which is where I've worked before. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, uh, I guess you know, you're really, probably... Um, I'm, I'm available to come up to New York and uh, water your plants, Jay, and walk your dog during the day. Because I know, I know the empire you run requires a lot of personal assistance. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Okay. Well, you've got a good sense of humor, Jeff. There's no question about that. If anything, I'd probably be coming down watering your plants down in, in Virginia, out in San Francisco. If you uh, were to happen, do you have a preference, West Coast, East Coast? I uh, take the Fifth Amendment on the ground okay. that my wife... Is going to beat me about the head <laughs> if I try to make her move again. Okay, I understand. I understand. Well, thank you. Uh, anything else you'd like to share with us before no, we? Looking forward to being on with you again. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jeff, for coming on. Uh, folks, don't go away. I'll be back with some closing thoughts on today's show, and also uh, tell you about some exciting guests next week. Don't go away. I'll be right back. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Eurasian Minerals is a prospect generation exploration and royalty company focused on the discovery of gold and copper. The company currently has over 140 properties on four continents. Our joint venture partners have committed to spend over $15 million on Eurasian Minerals projects in 2012. The company maintains a tight share structure a low cash burn rate, and holds $43 million in cash, creating value through discovery, growth, and royalties. Eurasian Minerals. I've recently recommended Northern Free Gold to my subscribers because its nearly 6 million gold equivalent ounce resource can lead to a major rise in its share price. The company's Yukon project is in a politically safe jurisdiction, far from population centers, and it is advantaged with road access and nearby electricity. A large deposit and a vision of positive economics should make Northern Free Gold an acquisition target. The potential upside, in my view, for these shares is major. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Training Hard Times and the Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I've got some uh, some closing comments on today's show. Uh, first of all, uh, uh, this uh, the equity markets have been, uh, well, pretty tough today. I think we're looking at uh, uh, Dow that lost 243 points, and uh, S&Ps are down hard. Gold is down hard. Almost everything is down hard except uh, Treasuries. U.S. Treasuries always seem to be uh, uh, the beneficiary of these tough days. Uh, these tough markets, I should say. I uh, would also um, just like to mention uh, that um, I really do think there are some extraordinary opportunities. You know, it's really difficult. When you have days like this, it's really difficult to look at some of these mining companies that can be very illiquid at times. Uh, and I think it's it's probably worth pointing out, and I think it's obvious, but it should be mentioned, uh, that uh, when you invest in junior mining companies, it is a high-risk game. And so you want to make sure that you're not putting money into those investments that you're going to have to have for your for your daily lives. And, and you want to make sure uh, that you protect yourself as best you can. And I, I've, um, I've talked about, you know, I think the better ways to play this, uh, the junior gold share market, I've talked about Sandstorm, which is... Uh, uh, off quite a bit from its peak uh, a week or so ago after it got some recognition on CNBC. Um, but Sandstorm is definitely a good way to play it, and you might look for a Sandstorm maybe to pick up some shares in the future, but I like that because of the, the reduced risk uh, model that we've talked about before. The project generators are certainly a good way to play the gold uh, gold mining share markets for sure. Uh, and that's because they get other people to spend high-risk dollars and they uh, to, to put holes in the ground to explore and, and look for metals. They also then are able to uh, reduce the dilution, which I think is one of the big risks. One of the risks in listening to uh, Mickey Falk talk today that came to mind uh, that I think I tried to bring out, uh, and Mickey would certainly agree with this, is that uh, you know Mickey talks about how these junior mining shares are frequently double uh, in the course of a year and then come back again. And uh, and he's right about that. I, I haven't done any statistical studies recently, but in an average year you might see these little penny stocks go from $0.50 cents to a dollar or a quarter to $0.50. Cents. And it is true that you can probably get in and out of them. The uh, one caveat to that that I would mention, though, is that many times there just isn't the liquidity you need to get in and out at the price you feel you need to get in and out of. So that is one big risk as well. I know that uh, my friend Chen Lin, when he gets involved in various companies, one of the things he does look at is the size, because his si- the size of the commitment uh, that he puts into these things, he's got to be able to get in and out of them. And so that is also another risk that you need to keep in mind. But first and foremost, you know, you shouldn't be investing money unless it's something that you can afford to lose, especially the, the further down the... Um, uh, the risk, uh, the further out you go on the risk curve. Uh, I, I do think that, though, I still believe very much that we are in the bull market of a lifetime for gold mining companies. And I say that because the real price of gold has risen very considerably. Um, and um, 
uh, it, it, since Lehman Brothers, and with that, the shares of the mining companies have increased. The share prices have not been fully reflective of that. I think in part because I believe that the major market believes that gold mining is just really uh, not something that is that it's going to have longevity to it. I, I happen to agree with Bob Hoy uh, that uh, when you have these major credit deflation events, so these events where we need to delever, when the markets are going to force a deleveraging in the system, that gold then is the beneficiary because people lose confidence in the currency, they lose confidence in the banking system, and we've seen that since Lehman Brothers. Uh, and Hoy has pointed out that this process um, in these major episodes usually lasts 15 to 20 years. And this one really started with Lehman Brothers, or slightly before that, according to Bob Hoy's work. My uh, my numbers uh, compare gold to the Rogers Raw Materials Fund, again, from 17% an ounce of gold would have bought of that fund in 2008, right before Lehman Brothers, to 44%, which is about where it is right now, but it's been as high as 49.5%, which means that gold relative to copper, energy, um, uh, food, and clothing items has gone up very dramatically. And this has been what has happened over the last, over the previous five major credit uh, episodes going back uh, some 300 years, the most recent being the 1930s, and this is according to Bob Hoy's work. I, I mentioned in my monthly newsletter, and I'm seeing I only have a minute of time, but I mentioned in my monthly newsletter that I think we are very, very close to a tipping point where this market could go either way. We could either see a massive uh, credit crunch and with it, declining prices and deflation, or we could go the other way. And I'm uh, saying that in part on the basis of my inflation-deflation watch, which I talk about frequently in my newsletter. I hope that you will look uh, to subscribe to my newsletter, J. Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stock. goes to uh, jtaylormedia.com for that. Next week, we're going to talk to John Butler. Uh, he is the author of The Golden Revolution. We're going to ask him more in detail why he thinks it's inevitable that we're heading to a back to some sort of a gold-backed monetary system. And I'm also really pleased to tell you that Dominic Frisbee is going to be with me. He's a well-known British comedian, uh, but now is addressing the very serious problems of our global economic malaise. Dominic does wor- some work for gold money, uh, and you can catch his very interesting interviews that he did, uh, a very interesting interview he did with Bob Hoy. If you go to jtaylormedia.com, jtaylormedia.com, you can uh, click on that and listen to the interview he did with Bob Hoy, which I think is extraordinarily uh, important at this time. Also next week, I'm going to be talking to the CEOs of Airway uh, Energy and also Mill Rock Resources. Well, in closing, I do want to thank each of you for listening. Thanks to Tacey Trump, my producer, Justin Jackman, my engineer. Those folks make this uh, uh, program logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel.